So if you've been with us since the beginning of this year, you know that we started a series the very first Sunday of 2022 entitled The Last Three. We're in the book of Mark, so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. And we have been moving through the book of Mark, which focuses on the last three years of Jesus' life. Now, this Sunday, there's a slight shift. If you notice, there's different colors and a little bit different graphic. And it's now not the last three, but it's the last three days. From now till Easter, the second part of our series, we are focusing on the last three days of Jesus' life. And this evening, we pick up on Holy Thursday. Holy Thursday in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. I'm going to ask you actually to stand as we read God's word together. Verses 22 through 25, you can check in your Bible or on the Crossbridge app as well as on the screen. Here's what God's word says to us. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So here in Mark 14, we in, we're moving into Holy Thursday. Holy Thursday is the term that is used affectionately for this day that is the day of the Last Supper. This is the last Thursday before Jesus will be crucified. This is the day before Good Friday. This is when Jesus will wash his disciples' feet. This is when he hosts the Passover meal with his disciples. And also, it is the night when he is betrayed. Jesus here, as we read in the section, is instituting what we will participate in in a, in a moment, and that is communion. But I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of the background, the context of what's taking place here so that you can really see what Jesus is saying and what he's teaching, not only his disciples, but what he's teaching you and me. So here, Jesus is initiating and hosting a Passover meal. Now, a, the Passover meal was, was held annually by God's people when Jesus was alive. And still today, God's people have been commemorating an event that took place in thir the 13th century BC for thousands of years. And that event is when God raised up a deliverer in Moses, and Moses goes into Egypt where Pharaoh is oppressing God's people, and he leads them to freedom. He leads them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Now, the way that this takes place, if you're familiar with the story in the book of Exodus, is that Moses goes in and he brings about these plagues. Now, every plague that he brings, Pharaoh is unwilling to let God's people go. Why? Because the Israelites are really important to the Egyptian economy. They are the workforce. They are the ones that build all of the structures. They are a part of how the economy functions. And it isn't until the very last plague that Pharaoh relents and allows Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And ultimately, God leads his people to the promised land. And that last plague is when God sends the angel of death, the sword of God's judgment upon every household in Egypt 
where the firstborn son is killed. This, is, this happens in every single household in Egypt except for those who sacrifice an innocent lamb and take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorpost of their house. Then within the house, they are sharing a meal of lamb and they are praying to God and asking for deliverance. And it says that the angel of death, the sword of God's judgment, passes over the households that are marked by the blood of the lamb. This is why the meal is called Passover. Because God's judgment passes over the households marked by the blood of the lamb. You see, what saves God's people and what is celebrated every single year up till today by Jewish people is that God saves his people by the provision that he provides, which is an innocent lamb that was slain. And the blood of the lamb that was slain in place of the people inside of the household is what saves those that fall under the blood or behind the blood of the lamb. So this is happening here now in Holy Th- on Holy Thursday, the last Thursday before Jesus is crucified. Now, there's preparation that must take place because this isn't just a meal where you read a couple passages of Scripture and you enjoy some lamb. There are all types of elements that must happen in order for the meal to be functioning properly. So Jesus in Mark 14 tells two of the disciples to go forward to find somebody carrying a jug of water and to ask that person carrying a jug of water if they can use the upper room at their house that is furnished. Now, to this point, Jesus has told his disciples some bizarre things, and they've come to pass every single time. So two of the disciples are like, all right, let's just go look for a guy with a jug of water. They find him. He, in fact, has an upper room that is furnished, and they prepare the meal. Now, what that means is they had to go get certain foods that were customary for the meal. They would also get a a lot of wine because everyone had four cups of wine in the Passover meal that represent four things. The cup of rescue, of freedom, of redemption, and of a renewed relationship with God. So these cups kind of mark the meal. You look at the rescue of God. You look at the freedom that God provides his people, the redemption that God provides, and then the renewed relationship that God's people enjoy with God himself. So the meal is is taking place. I want you to picture it. They're in this upper room. They're at this long table. Jesus is hosting this meal, and he's officiating it. And it's not a somber meal. That's important for you to understand. This is not like, you know, you're just kind of reading scripture, and it's very serious. This is a meal full of laughter. If you've ever been a part of a Passover meal or a Seder dinner, you know that there is singing and there is laughing and there are kids running around often. In this case, there's not. It's just the disciples and Jesus. But it is a time of joy. It is like Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. It is fun with full of laughter and remembering God's deliverance. So this is all taking place. The disciples are probably thinking, this is an amazing night. What an amazing night we're having. And then Jesus drops a bomb. Here's what he says in verse 18. Verse 18, it says, As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. I mean, talk about a mood shift, right? They're all hanging out. They're laughing. They're joking. They're singing. This is a great night. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like, hey, guys, real quick, real quick. One of you is going to betray me. It's like 
Okay, now everything has changed. In fact, it says in the very next verse, verse 19, they began to be sorrowful. They went from joy to sorrow, and, they, and to say to him, one after the other, is it I? So the meal's laughing in joy, and then Jesus says, hey, guys, real quick, um, one of you is going to betray me, and all of a sudden, it's silence. The mood has shifted. Everyone, the pit in their stomach has dropped, and they all look to Jesus, one after the other, and they're, Jesus, is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Jesus then responds to their questioning of him. Verse 20. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, what that means is, as they are all questioning Jesus, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Jesus says, It is one of you. In fact, it's the one right here that's dipping his bread in the dish with me. So now all eyes are on Judas. Now we know that Judas responds here because the gospel of Matthew says that Judas then looks at Jesus and says, is it I? Well, it's kind of like Jesus just said it's you, Judas. Your fingers are in the bowl with him. And, and, but this is interesting because Judas knows it's him. It's not as if, like, Jesus calls out Judas, and he's like, why'd you do that? And then he goes, and he, in fact, fulfills, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So he goes, and he's like, oh, I might as well betray him, because Jesus thinks I'm going to betray him anyway, so let me go do it. We know in Mark 14 that he's already hatched the plan. He's already met with the scribes and, and you know, negotiated on the sum of money that he's going to receive. And yet here, he looks at Jesus, and he says, is it I? Why? Because Judas is testing Jesus. Obviously, Jesus has already said it's the one dipping in the dish with me. But it's also because Judas doesn't see Jesus as the true Messiah. A great prophet, maybe. A great teacher. Someone who has done some amazing things. But Jesus has been speaking a lot about his death. And Judas knows that the religious establishment wants him dead. And Judas believes that a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. You see, there's no concept for the disciples, for God's people in this time period to believe that a Messiah could die and somehow be the prophesied Messiah, the great king of kings. So I imagine Judas is thinking to himself, you know what, I mean, this is getting really tenuous. It's, there's a lot of heat on Jesus. He's going to be killed. Why don't I at least make some money out of the last three years that I've invested in Jesus? So he hatches a plan to betray Jesus. And then he questions him. And then Jesus confirms it. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, yes, it is you, Judas. And it says that Judas rushes out and he leaves. Now, there's something else that's interesting here too. Take the perspective of Jesus. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. He's already confirmed it. He's already shared it. Out of the middle of nowhere, he drops the bomb and says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. It's Judas. He already knows it, and yet he brings it up. Why bring it up? Especially because Jesus knows that even though he brings it up, Judas is still going to betray him because Jesus' mission is the cross. He knows he must die. He knows he will be betrayed. He knows that this is the last night of his life before he is crucified. And yet he brings it up. So I believe he brings it up because he wants to signal something to the disciples and to us. And that is this, 
that he gives an opportunity to repent to betrayers. He knows Judas won't repent, but he gives him an opportunity. And when he gives him this opportunity, Judas rushes away from Jesus and leaves immediately. See, when we read the Bible, I don't know if if you relate with this, but we read the Bible and we oftentimes connect ourselves to like the heroes, right? Like, I'm David. I'm Moses. We're always like the best. Like, or maybe even a little bit better than David because like you didn't murder anyone. I don't know. Maybe you have, but you didn't murder anyone, you know? And you feel like, okay, I'm going to connect with the best of them, the best parts of people. And nobody wants to relate with Judas. No one's like, hey, I'm Judas. No one said, you don't name your son Judas, middle name Iscariot. Like, you're not going to do that, right? Judas is not someone that you want. You can maybe associate with David and Peter and Moses and Abraham. They had their flaws, but they were still great. It's like, what is great about Judas? I don't know. But do you relate with Judas? Do I relate with Judas? It's a really important question to ask yourself. Look what happens with Judas. He's given an opportunity to repent. And yet he rushes away from Jesus and goes forward with the plan anyway. How many times has Jesus given you an opportunity to repent, to stop, to think, and to change what you have planned to do, and instead you rush away from Jesus and go do what you're going to do anyway? How many times have you had this opportunity, this conviction of the Holy Spirit to repent, to stop, to change, and you're like, you know what? No, I'm going to rush away from you, Jesus, and I'm going to go do what I want to do anyway for a dopamine hit, for a good time, for a financial opportunity, for an ego boost, for my own agenda. If we're honest, we relate with Judas more than we want to admit. We're like him because in many ways we betray God's word. We betray Jesus himself. And here's why I want you to see that. It's not because like, wow, I'm walking out of here feeling like I'm Judas today. Thank you. for Glad I went to church. It's because I want you to see how Jesus treats Judas. How he treats the betrayer. So he is betrayed, he has confirmed it, Judas has confirmed it by running out and leaving, and here's what Jesus says next, verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, this, take, this is my body, and he took the cup, this is the middle of the meal, so this is now the third cup of redemption, so he's holding up the cup of redemption, and he says, when he had given thanks, he took it to them and he said, they, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Right after Jesus is betrayed by Judas, it's confirmed and everyone in the room is feeling like, what's he going to say next? What's going to happen next? Jesus changes the script in the Passover meal. This was not customary. Nobody in the Passover meal would talk about the bread being someone's body or the cup of redemption being the blood of the covenant. Yet Jesus changes the script in the Passover meal, takes the bread, breaks it, and says, this is my body, my body which will be broken. This cup, the cup of redemption, is my blood which will be poured out for many. What is Jesus saying to those in the room and to those of us here? That he is the one leading the great exile, the great exodus. 
He is the one that is leading people from bondage to deliverance. He is the new and better Moses. He is the third cup of redemption. He's making the Passover meal about him. He's saying, this is about me. The bread that is broken in this meal is me and my body which will be broken. The cup of redemption that you drink of is my blood that will be poured out for many. See, here's why that's so important. Because that is not how most of us respond when we are betrayed. What is the, the instinct when you are betrayed? It is to seek vengeance. It is to wallow in self-pity. It is to attack or to slander. It is to protect yourself or attack the person who has betrayed you. And yet Jesus, when he is betrayed... He moves immediately to redemption. He doesn't even mention Judas at all. He doesn't say anything. It's not like, well, glad he was left. He's like the worst of the disciples, so now it's just you 11, you know. He doesn't say a single word about Judas. He moves immediately to redemption. Why? Because Judas isn't the only betrayer. In this same meal, he looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, you're going to betray me three times. And Peter, being a lot like many of us, is like, no way, Jesus. I'm really serious about you. I'm the best disciple. There's no way I'm going to betray you. And then what does Peter do? The next day, he betrays him three times. Now, I want you, I was thinking about this this week. I want you to imagine that you're one of the other disciples, right? You're at this meal. Judas has just run out to go betray Jesus. Peter's going to betray Jesus three times. How are you feeling? You're like, feeling pretty good here, you know? But every single one of them will betray Jesus. When he's crucified, they will all run and hide and disassociate with him. They have no concept, no, no category for Jesus' death to, to culminate in a resurrection three days later. You see, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, he's betrayed by Peter three times, he's betrayed by all the disciples, and he's betrayed by the very people who a week ago were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and tomorrow we'll be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus speaks nothing about the betrayal, he speaks only about redemption for the very people who betray him. This is my body, broken, this is my blood, that will be poured out. You see, in the Passover meal, there's always three core elements. Two of them you've seen here, bread and wine. There's a third core element. Can you guess what it is? Lamb. That's the centerpiece of the meal. It's the main course. But here in the Gospel of Mark and in every other Gospel, there's no mention of lamb. Nowhere is it mentioned. Why? I mean, this is like the center of the meal. It's what the whole story is focused on. The innocent lamb that was slain, the blood placed in the doorpost so that the angel of death, the sword of God's judgment would pass over you. This is an important component of the meal. It's not on the table. You see, lamb was not on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Lamb was not on the table at this meal. The Lamb of God was at the table because Jesus wants his disciples and he wants you to see that he is the main course. He is the main course of this meal. This meal is about him. 
He is the bread that is broken. His blood is the blood of the covenant that will be poured out. He is the lamb that will be slain, that when you hide under and behind the provision of God, that is Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, the angel of death, the sword of God's judgment passes over you. You see, they're going to realize this tomorrow, and it's going to be confirmed on Easter Sunday that Jesus is, in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The prophet Isaiah, when speaking about the Messiah that will come, he says, the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all, and he will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world so that when we hide behind him, the judgment of God passes over. He is our shelter and our provision. He is the main course. You see, what I want us to see most profoundly and clearly in this passage is that real love, real love, is substitutionary sacrifice. See, this is not only true with Jesus, but this is true in every other place in life. And I want to use this example to help connect it. This is an example that every single person in this room will relate with. And that is this. There is a prevalence of cliques in the world. Do you know that? Do you know that there's cliques? It's not just high school. It's not just college. There are cliques in your office. There are cliques in your gym. There are cliques, yes, even in church. Did you know that? There's cliques everywhere. Every single culture, every place in the world has cliques. Why? Because we know something. We know that our friends rub off on us. Our friends affect us. And so many of us are very intentional and thoughtful about who we associate with and the friends that we keep. Because we also know that our social circle reflects upon us too. People judge you and they have opinions about you based upon who you associate with. I mean, so much of social media is boasting about who you're connected to and who you know. Who's in your social circle? Who your friends are? How many friends you have? This is so much of life. And it's why cliques form. But for some of us, it's difficult for us to develop deep friendships. Some of us don't have robust social circles. Maybe this was your high school experience or college experience. Maybe this is your experience now in the office. You feel disconnected from your coworkers, not accepted. For many of us, we struggle with friendships and a social circle. We feel left out. See, oftentimes, if that's the case for you, you find one of three things. You find either bullying, you find isolation where you feel not accepted and ostracized like an outsider, or you find labels that are placed upon you like weird or different. And we know this to be true. Whether that is your experience where you feel isolated and you feel lonely and you feel like an outsider or you feel labeled weird, or you don't but you know people that are categorized that way or feel that way. This is true in our world and we relate with it. And that's why there are stories that are very compelling to us. There are stories that we want to share on social media and we want to read about. And that is this. When an insider in a community befriends an outsider. When the popular person 
befriends an unpopular person. This is moving. It's powerful. Why? Because we know it takes sacrifice. We all know that when an insider befriends an outsider or when a popular person engages and cares for an unpopular person, that there's a sacrifice of reputation, of ego, of even friends possibly because people will say things. Why would you hang out with them? Don't you know how that reflects upon you? Don't you think that they're weird? Why would you engage them? That's going to make you look different. Don't bring them in our group. People know, all of us know, that in order for you to love the outcast, you have to allow yourself and accept the reality that you may be outcasted too. That your position as a popular person to love someone who's unpopular will be unpopular with a lot of people. It's a sacrifice. And yet it's real love. Because real love looks to Love someone enough to allow them to rub off on you even if it affects you. See, real love says, I'm not only going to take you into account, but I'm going to take you on to my account. And the person that you love or befriend that is feeling isolated and like an outsider, they know you sacrifice too. So it affects them as well. It's why oftentimes those type of friendships are very deep and powerful. Because a person that has been isolated and ostracized and created to be an outsider in a community, when they have someone that actually shows them love and affection, they know that it took them sacrifice, and so that relationship is much closer and more intimate and real because of the sacrifice. Now listen, this is not only true with our friendships and social circles. Look at Jesus. Look how he lives. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is constantly engaging and caring for the outcast and the outsider, so much so that the insiders in the community, the religious establishment, they scoff at Jesus, and they judge him, and they throw labels at him. He's a drunkard. He's a sinner like them. But Jesus is not interested in the same things they're interested in. What are they interested in? They are interested in worldly power and upholding the norms of their religious institutions and of following the so-called right behavior. Jesus is not interested in those things. Jesus is interested in the pain of others, the stories of others, and the redemption of others. And so he accepts whatever labels are placed upon him. He will run towards the outsider and the outcast, and befriend them and extend them grace and show them patience. And ultimately, he will die for the outsider. All of his disciples are outsiders. Those that are following Jesus are outsiders. And those that will believe in Jesus, they're also outsiders. Persecuted, scoffed at, laughed at. And yet his body will be broken and his blood poured out for the outsider and the outcast. You see, Jesus engages with people in society the exact opposite way that the insiders do. Look at this. When Jesus goes to heal the leper, the leper who nobody would touch, they put outside the city, they wouldn't want to even come within the shadow of the leper. When Jesus goes to heal the leper, how does he heal the leper? Touches them. Jesus befriends and defends the prostitute. Jesus breaks racial barriers with the Samaritan woman. 
Jesus restores honor and dignity to somebody who is dishonored in society, chiefly women. Jesus comes to the poor and speaks about how they are rich. Jesus goes to those who are disabled and so therefore they are treated in society like somehow it was their fault and they have these harmful spiritual myths and all this shame placed upon them and he destroys that and he wipes it away. Jesus looks at a criminal on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus gives Judas, the one who will betray him, leading to his death an opportunity to repent. And Jesus looks at somebody who will betray him three times and he says, Peter, upon you I will build my church. Look at how Jesus engages people. It's real love. He holds up the third cup of redemption to you. And he says, I identify with you. I allow you to rub off on me. In fact, I take your sin upon my shoulders for I am the lamb who will be slain because of your sin. You see, Jesus' love which is substitutionary sacrifice, it affected him. That's why he had to go to the cross because the Father poured out his judgment upon Jesus on the cross so that you don't have to receive it. The sword of judgment was poured out on the Lamb of God on the cross. It affected him to be associated with us, to be in relationship with us, to redeem us to give us freedom and rescue us. And when you believe that, when you drink of that cup of faith knowing that you are invited into Jesus' social circle, it should change you too. It should affect you and move you deeply because you know you are not an enemy of God, you are a friend of God. You are no longer to feel like you are too dirty or messed up for God. No, you are protected and befriended and defended. You are not a criminal. You are promised paradise. You are not a betrayer. You are invited to build the church. You are to take every label and all the shame and guilt that you have amassed in life because people have said things and they have judged you and they have treated you a certain way and you are to throw it aside, pass over it. You are to live different, to receive the honor that Jesus provides, the dignity that he gives you, the richness found in him, to realize that you are a friend because he's the Lamb of God who died in your place. This is the real love of Jesus. You see, here in the Passover meal, Jesus is the main course. In communion, as we partake in a moment, Jesus is the main course. Here on Sunday, every single week, Jesus is the main course. And who is to be the main course of your life? Can you guess? Who is it? Jesus. Don't let that just be a word. Oh, yeah, Jesus is the main course of my life. No, he is to be that. If you've received the real love of Jesus and you believe that he was the substitutionary sacrifice for you, he better be the, real, the main course of your life. How could he not be? The judgment of God is passed over you. You hide behind the blood of Jesus which was poured out for you, the broken body of Jesus that was shed and placed upon that cross for you. You are marked now by Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And I want to say this to you. Do not live beneath that. 
It is so easy to live beneath that, to get distracted like the religious establishment of Jesus' day and to be focused on worldly power and upholding accepted norms in religious tradition and to do the so-called right behavior because it makes you feel better. Jesus is not interested in these things. Jesus is interested in the pain of others, the stories of others, and the redemption of others. So what does it mean to receive the love of Jesus and to allow it to shape you and to not live beneath it? It means to live like Jesus, interested in the pain and the stories and the redemption of others. You see, here at Crossbridge, we seek to preach grace and the gospel and Jesus every single week. But we also have to ask ourselves sobering questions at time. And I want to, to put this sobering question to you and ask you to process it now and this week. And that is this. Have you betrayed Jesus' vision for building the church and settled for attending the church? Have you betrayed Jesus' vision for building the church and settled for attending the church. You see, the church is not what happens on Sunday. It is not an inspiring message or great music. And it's not the programs. It's not the small groups. It's not serve projects. These things are a part of the church, but it is not the church. You know what the church is? It is a community of people shaped by the real love of Jesus and looking to extend the real love of Jesus to the outsider. That's the church. Anything else that gets in the way of that, pass over. And you are invited to build the church. Jesus builds his church upon someone who denies him three times. The next encounter that Jesus has with him, he says, Peter, feed my sheep. Build my church. You may feel like I'm not ready to build the church. I still have a lot to get sorted out. I still have a lot to grow. I still have a lot of, th no, no, no. You are ready right now. You are like Peter. I am like Peter. We all have mess and brokenness, and yet Jesus looks at us. He says, you are a friend. The judgment of God has passed over you. If you reside in me as you believe in faith in me, build the church. The church is not built by just the pastors and staff and deacons and elders. They are a part of it. The church is built by you. Jesus' vision for the church was not that a few people would build it and then everybody else would attend it. Do you know that? You are called to build the church because the real love of Jesus has shaped you and you say, you know what, my calling and my life is to be about extending that real love of Jesus to the outsider in my office, to the outsider in my neighborhood or my condo, to the outsider in that social circle or community that I'm a part of. I'm to build the church. Here's your challenge. To process this question, how is Jesus calling you to build his church now? Not like later, like, okay, I'll get to that later. No, no, now. <laughs> how is he calling you to build his church now? Who are you to engage? What are you to engage? Who do you need to befriend and speak to? What do you need to pass over so you can focus on Jesus' vision for your life and for the church? Because if you believe in faith in Jesus, you're not a part of just a church. You're a part of the church, a community of people shaped by the real love of Jesus, looking to extend it to outsiders. How is Jesus calling you to build his church now? I pray that we would process that. 
that we would be people that would move from just attending church to building the church. Because I'm telling you, I believe something deep in my soul. I've shared this with many people. I believe that at Crossbridge, we are on the verge of revival. I believe it. Do you believe it? But listen, you know how revival happens? One, by the Holy Spirit moving in a powerful way among God's people. And two, by God uniting his people who are on mission together. Not by one great leader or one great speaker or just great music or a few people that really work hard. Revival happens when the community of God's people say, Holy Spirit, we want you to use us. We're going to be united together. We want to build the church together. We have different gifts and different capacities and different time and different talents and different treasure. But we're going to do it together and we believe. I want to invite you to believe and to build. Because it's Jesus' vision for you. For this church and every other church. So will you pray with me? God, I confess that at times, even as a pastor on staff at a church, I can get distracted from your vision. I can think about other things that are important and a necessary aspect of life, but not nearly as important as your vision. God, I pray for all of us here, for every single one of us here that is residing under the blood of you, Jesus, the Lamb of God slain for us, one that we would rest in the truth that your judgment, God, passes over us, that we are not an enemy but a friend, that we may be people that at times betray your word and your vision for your church, and yet you call us friend. You tell us, go build the church. Would we believe that? Would we be passionate and excited and motivated about around that vision? Would you give each and every one of us clarity of how we are to engage, who we are to engage, what that looks like? Holy Spirit, right now, breathe fresh clarity and vision into every single one of us. And excite us for what you're going to do. Because we rest in you. It's only you that can do amazing work and bring revival. But we pray believing prayers. Believing that you will. We're excited to experience that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.